0: Well, Father, it's always so good to gather, and this morning, once again, we've been encouraged already. We're strengthened to even just meet together as a church family in the name of Christ. Father, would you continue to grow us and strengthen us as we turn in our Bibles and study the Word together and continue our worship through the respectful hearing and then the ongoing obedience of your Word. May your Holy Spirit have a great freedom to challenge us and to correct us, to encourage and strengthen us, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the great reminder of Christmas that we are loved and that uh, we are loved completely and to the fullest and to the degree that you gave the greatest gift you could ever give, that of your own son, to come be our substitute on the cross and provide such a great salvation and newness of life for those who enter in by grace through faith. Father, we commit ourselves now to just receiving your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to tell you that um, I I don't want to shock anybody, but we have on our platform one of the more offensive items of the Christmas season. Have you noticed? Whoops, that one's uh, not glued together. I better not pick it up. I... Uh, The stories are trickling around, and I don't know, I don't want to build um, a bigger case than it really is. I suspect that it is a very small number of people in our society and culture who truly and genuinely are offended by a manger scene. I was going to hold up the manger scene. We have a number of ongoing lawsuits. I've, I've seen that a number have been dismissed by the courts and are not being dealt with, Uh, you see signs uh, on the internet news uh, this time of year where maybe they'll find some isolated cases in our cities, and once in a while you'll see them yourselves, uh, where a a particular anti-Christmas group or an anti-Christian group or an atheist group will uh, rent a billboard or rent the side of a bus. Uh, There was one that I noticed that uh, the picture is of the wise men, uh, on a horizon much like what's on our screens, only the title is, you know, and know is in big bold letters, you know it's a myth, this season, celebrate reason. Do you get it? There's a little play on words there. They're clever. They're clever. This season, celebrate reason. So implied in the messages is that thinking people... People who are reasoning or reasonable people would um, just not buy into these ancient myths that mean so much to the Christian church. I invite you to Matthew chapter 2 because I want you to see today that it's not a new thing to be disturbed by Jesus. Uh, Jesus has a way of upsetting people. And it is interesting to me to ponder how a manger scene and a little wooden feeding trough with a little doll baby in it is so horrendously offensive to communities and so intellectually damaging to our children. But I guess that if you are totally committed to a naturalist worldview and the centrality of man and reason then things that are of the Bible or spiritual nature, uh, I guess you could build a case, would be somehow damaging or offensive. In Matthew chapter 2, we're jumping ahead in the Christmas story, and it's one of the more interesting characters of Christmas. It is interesting to note that as last week we focused on being surprised by Jesus, uh, that at some level in the Christmas story, every Player who plays a part, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the community. You could argue even Jesus himself at the initiation of the Father's plan of incarnation that every part of the Christmas story involves somebody who is disturbed or interrupted by Jesus. Mary and Joseph, we talked about last week with their great surprise. Mary for being surprised at the great call upon her life. Joseph surprised with a change of plans. Their lives were interrupted or disturbed, weren't they? Now, they responded in humble obedience. You have, uh, I said, arguably Jesus, and I've already kind of made this up, and I'm sure it's not accurate because we know clearly from Scripture that the Son is completely submissive to the Father, that there is complete joy in obedience of Jesus to His Heavenly Father. But that remarkable moment that you get the idea in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that there was this time, and then at just the right time, Paul wrote, at just the right time, in other words, right now is the time, and perhaps this was not a common knowledge in all of heaven, that... God the Father looks to the Son and says, now's the time. And His role as the second member of the Godhead takes on the role of humanity in the incarnation. You could argue that Jesus was interrupted by Jesus Himself. What a change. What a change. To leave the portals of heaven, to become a microscopic fetus, an unborn baby in the womb. Of Mary. The shepherds thought they had another quiet night on, on the dock. And there they are, working their fields and watching over their sheep about their business. And they were interrupted, weren't they? The wise men were interrupted and disturbed. They were curious men, these guys from Persia. And they're involved in our story today in Matthew chapter 2. So let's just look there. But there embedded in our story is this most curious character in the Christmas story, and this is some months following the birth of our Lord, but I thought today was a good day to deal with Him, as we live in a world where where Jesus disturbs people. He's upsetting people, and um, He interrupts people's lives. Not everybody is cooperative with those interruptions, And in our story today, we have this interesting Scrooge-like character, the forerunner, the ultimate Scrooge, Herod, whose life is all about himself. Perhaps even before we dig into the story, let me tell you about this Herod here. He's the first of a number of Herods in the Bible. He's most interesting to read about. Um, it's interesting to read in a commentary where they will draw lines and charts. And if you have opportunity to do that, you would actually benefit from that to figure out some of these leaders who were over uh, the Israelites at this time and the Jewish people under Rome's uh, strong iron fist. He's the first of the Herods that we know of mentioned in the New Testament. And he was very well known historically as a very clever Capable warrior. He was ruthless when he had enemies. But when he gained power, um, he became quite a, he was quite an orator and a diplomat. He, um, in 25 BC, so we're looking at about a quarter of a century, roughly speaking, before the birth of our Lord, there was a huge famine. And during that famine, he took gold objects from his own palace, melted them down, to go to foreign countries to buy food to feed his people. So at some level, there was a level of benevolence in him. He recognized that he needed a people to stay alive so that he could be a ruler. He built theaters, he built racetracks to provide entertainment for the people. He began to actually build the temple in Jerusalem. He's the one that started it, the one that was present when Jesus was an adult that was destroyed then and still has not been rebuilt, but will be one day, that was destroyed in 70 A.D. He built Masada. That would be of interest to some of you. Uh, That high fortress in the wilderness uh, where later in 73 A.D., a thousand Jewish defenders, rather than face defeat, committed suicide uh, up there at Masada, rather than be captured by the Romans. He was, um, in some ways, a, a great political leader, he had been proclaimed the king of the Jews. And that's an important thing to realize in our story today. That he had actually been in a ceremony and ceremoniously proclaimed by the, those that were above him in Rome that he was the king of the Jews. And so there he was in this region of Israel overseeing and governing the property. There's a couple interesting stories about how ruthless he was, and towards the end of his life, he evidently lost control even of his faculties and his reason at some level. He was threatened by, um, it was actually um, a nephew, I believe, and and one story that I read about this Herod is that he was he was, of course, as these guys were often paranoid about leadership, their own security and leadership, And so if they sensed a threat at any level, they would ruthlessly remove that threat. So that also adds into the story today in Matthew 2 about why he would be so concerned about talk on the street of a new king of the Jews. His protocol had been that if there was ever an ounce of threat, that he would remove that threat completely. And one story about a young man who I believe was his nephew, if I remember correctly what he did when he felt that that guy was getting a little bit uh, out of line and and, uh, felt like maybe he was looking for more power, he threw a big party down at the river, this Herod did, and it was summertime and it was hot and they had a big swimming party. And after a while, he invited this man to go swimming and they all gathered in and the servants were already swimming. And he had it arranged ahead of time with some of his cronies that in the activity of the swimming in the play, and I don't know if they had some kind of rough housing going on or water polo going on, but these uh, stealth agents that were in the in the water, water with them uh, came up from underneath and pulled this young man down and drowned him in the middle of the picnic time. In that context, he acted very grieved and wept through a huge funeral for him where he was publicly seen grieving and crying. It's the kind of guy he was. Helps you understand a little bit the paranoia and the the kind of thought processes that run through this guy's mind. We meet him because of these interesting Persian wise men who are looking for Jesus. Let's read our text a little bit and then let's understand a little more about this one who is so disturbed by Jesus. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, here's our guy, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's just comment briefly about the wise men. You need to understand that what we read here today is essentially all we know about them. Other than that, there's lots of apocryphal uh, storying about them. The whole idea that we know their names or that they were the sons of Noah, so one of them was uh, dark-skinned, that we know their name. That's all myth. That's all make-believe. None of it is substantiated by history. The fact that there were three of them is a, a case built by the fact that there are three gifts named. and There probably was a much larger entourage. And they come from Persia, uh, present-day Iran probably, and that region of the country. And it's interesting that um, at some level we get the idea that they followed the star. Um, it, it shows later in the story that it did lead them at some level there's been lots of talk about this star. What was it? There's been some research, and through different computerized programs, they can actually rebuild the model of the sky that would have been present in AD 2 and 3, and right about the time of the birth of our Lord, and there's different dates suggested as to exact date of when our Lord was born. And some of that is very interesting and, and somewhat credible. Um, my personal opinion is to not get too caught up in trying to figure out a natural cause For this star. It could have been some kind of a planetary alignment and it could have been that they were watching. Somehow these wise men had a sense that Messiah would come and they, it was marked by this star and as they journeyed, now you have to understand a couple things that they probably had very limited optical assistance so that they could look with telescopes very limited if any at all and most of their observing would have been with the naked eye you also have to remember that stars would have shown better then, and everybody would have watched the stars a little more than we do we have so much light pollution especially in charlestown from our beloved racetrack i mean you can't even tell whether it's a cloudy night or a starry night and some of you remember growing up in the country and on the farm and at night and there wasn't any street lights and there's not any uh, house lights on and things and just how vivid the stars could be. And so they were observers of the night sky. And so somehow they saw an anomaly. They saw something that was curious to them and they decided to, to try to pursue a better vantage point. They traveled some 700 miles. One of the questions that comes up is the the speculation of, how did they know about Messiah? Why did these guys, because they probably, at some level, were at least borderline into the occult. They probably were a pretty reasonable group of guys, and there is reason to believe that these Eastern wise men were really pretty credible scholars at a lot of levels and carried a good bit of clout in their culture. The, the best suggestion that I've heard, and many commentators have come up with this, and it makes sense, is that, is that in the uh, exile of Israel earlier at the time of Daniel, they were taken up into Babylon and up into the land of the Chaldeans and the Persians. They were spread out all over the known world of that day. And when Ezra came back to rebuild the temple and when Nehemiah came back to build the walls and when they regathered in Jerusalem, not everybody came back. Many people started new lives in these foreign lands. And so they would have been people who one generation after another had been taught about the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they would have had some level of understanding and they would have sought out when they heard and when prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah wrote Perhaps these writings got around, but many commentaries speculate that it is a derivative of Daniel's testimony from way back, that some of these guys were converted and that they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so that they had a level of understanding and insight. So we can speculate, we don't know, you can't prove anything about it, you can only make good speculation. What we read today is what we know what the Bible tells us. And I personally, just like I don't have to figure out a natural cause for a fish that swallowed a guy named Jonah, and I don't have to figure out a natural cause so that rain could flood the whole, you know, the whole world globe, globally, um, I, I don't need physical answers. Um, the angel told Mary, didn't he, in Luke 1, with God, nothing is impossible. And I have no problem believing that this was even a specially designed light and that these wise men perhaps even saw it in a way that other people didn't see it. I have no further explanation than that. We'll just take the Bible at its word. So these wise men come from the east. They traveled some 700 miles. And they come to Herod and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now imagine if you're paranoid Herod and you're already known for knifing people in the back, for wanting to take any kind of power, what this does to his antennas. all right? And so the first thing we see about Herod, number one, is that he's irritated by Jesus. He's irritated by Jesus. Notice what it says. And it says, verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. It says in the ESV, troubled. The idea of being troubled here is an idea of being upset, agitated. It derives from a root word of water that is Troubled water, water that is, has uh, little riffles and is not smooth or calm. He's... Uh, uh, uh. What do you mean? And he's got to hide it on his countenance. On the inside, he's very irritated by Jesus. He wants to know what in the world is going on here. But we find out next that he's not only is he irritated about Jesus, and I find this is an interesting pattern because I find it in people so today even. He's irritated by Jesus, but number two, he's ignorant of Jesus. Look what it says. When Herod the king, verse three, heard this, he was troubled, okay, he's irritated, he's restless, he's at ill at ease, and all Jerusalem with him. It is likely that the reason all Jerusalem was uncomfortable was less about Jesus and more about Herod being uncomfortable with Jesus. And it's gonna you know it's gonna reap the whirlwind coming up for their community. And all Jerusalem with him, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? So he evidently hasn't been paying too much attention to the scripture, to the prophets. He assembles the chief priests, all of the high intellectuals of the day and those who would know the Old Testament, based upon the comments of what these wise men from the East have told him, Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, here's the quote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel, Micah the prophet. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him bring me word that I too may come and worship him yeah. he's irritated by Jesus we find that he's ignorant about Jesus and we know from the scriptures that had he paid attention he could locate the exact place Micah 5 2 he would be born in Bethlehem that's what's quoted here He would know who the person was, Isaiah 9, 6, the Son of the Highest, all the names of Jesus that are given in Isaiah 9. Not only the place, the person, but the proof. Isaiah 7, he'll be born of a virgin. There's some things to look for here, some things to watch out for. Irritated but ignorant. I was thinking as I observed that about Herod, that that seems to be a common pattern in people. You ever notice that? Jesus really bugs people. Well, I don't really like Jesus. Um, the Jesus I believe in is a loving, kind Jesus. Really, you read your New Testament, he's pretty harsh. Except to pitiful, poor, broken people. But people are irritated by Jesus, but they don't take time to study Jesus. They really don't know anything about Jesus, and they make up stuff in their head about Jesus. You need to be very, really very careful about that. But there's something about Jesus that people just can't seem to maintain neutrality. I guess at some level, there's people that just totally don't care. But this guy cares because he finds out that he has an agenda to take over his life. Sound familiar? Why maybe Jesus irritated you at one time in your life? He wants everything about me. Irritated by Jesus, ignorant of Jesus, and number three, insincere about Jesus, that I too, the end of verse 8, that I too may come and worship him. Are you kidding me? He wants to worship him, all right. He wants to identify where he is, of course, so he can snuff him out. He was an insanely jealous leader, and we know that as I've already given a little bit of a background, a thumb sketch background. After listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. rose, and it went before them. So there you get the idea that this thing had moved, whether for 700 miles they had been able to observe it, or they thought that when they got there they would be able to see a particular star, and they had figured out that this was the, the time on the calendar that they would see it. But this thing moves. Some Bible students sh- suggest that this was a kind of Shekinah glory. Remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness, how God went before them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? This light. John 1 certainly makes clear that he is the light of the world. More speculation about what exactly this is. We just have what our Bibles say and the wise men were able to see and follow this light in the sky to the very spot where Jesus lay. It gives you the idea that maybe it was low in the sky or somehow mathematically they were, they were reacting to it so they could pinpoint a spot. There's no doubt that these guys probably were experts in geometry and algebra and things like that. Regardless, they find where the baby is. Let's go back to the scripture. And behold the star, middle of verse 9. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It was a very meaningful thing to them. They had some level of spiritual understanding of the reality of who this was. Now, whether, like so many in that day, they thought he was going to be a political leader um, I think that they thought that somehow peace would come to earth. And That hasn't happened and it's a spiritual reality, isn't it, that Jesus brought this peace, the potential for peace. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child. So we know that they're not in the manger anymore. We don't know how much time has gone by, whether it's weeks or months or a year or two. A time frame has gone by and they are in a house. It's possible that it's only a matter of weeks and that they have just relocated, that that space has come available and they are now relocated in a more uh, comfortable housing arrangement, Joseph and Mary and the baby. And they fell down and they worshipped him and then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country. We find out that Herod's insincerity about Jesus is real. Look what happens next. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Number four, Herod is intolerant of Jesus. He refuses to tolerate any level of this this existence So Joseph rises, he takes the child and mother by night, he departs to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. We don't have that prophecy anywhere else in scripture, but there it is. And it's stated clearly, by the way, a parenthetical thought here on fulfilled prophecies in the first coming of our Lord. You've heard me say many times that the literal nature of the prophecies of the first coming of Christ are a big part of the reason why I believe that when we study eschatology or the the the, the teaching of the last days and prophetic pronouncement about how Christ will come in His second coming, that because of the literal nature of the fulfillment of first coming prophecies, there's no reason not to believe that second coming prophecies will be literal. Therefore, I don't spiritualize very much of the second coming prophetic pronouncements. But it's interesting to know that there are somewhere around 270 precise prophetic statements about the first coming of our Lord. And there are about 60 more references that after the fact and sometimes quoted in scripture, you find out that when you read it the first time, there was absolutely no indication that that was a first coming prophecy about the coming of our Lord, but later it was referenced, so there's about 60 innuendo or references, for about 330 references, prophetically speaking, many of them written anywhere from 400 to 1,200 years before the coming of our Lord and His birth. Some guy did some research. He figured out that for just eight, for just eight of those things, that he would be born in Uh, Bethlehem, and that he was born of a virgin, and some of the different things that happened. That for just eight of those prophecies to come true in the same person at this time, is the same mathematical odds as taking the entire state of Texas, filling it knee-deep with quarters, and having one quarter have an X on it, letting a blind man wander around Texas for an indefinite period of time, knee-deep in quarters, for him then, at his own time, to be able to bend over and just pick up one quarter, and for him to pick up the quarter with the X on it, that's the odds of just eight of those coming true. So it, it, I think that's mathematically impossible. Well, it's mathematically possible, practically impossible. But once again, I don't need to reason my way through the Christmas story, and have the Bible said it, and God calls us to receive His Word by faith, doesn't He? And... Um, so there you are, the fulfillments that are in Christ. So here's our incredible antagonist about Jesus. This guy who is disturbed by Jesus, he's irritated. We find that he's ignorant of Jesus and he needed some help understanding the Word of God. Not only is he ignorant, but he's, he's insincere. He has no intention of worshiping Jesus. We're going to read here in verse 16. Not only is he insincere, but we, we build on the point... Number four, that he was absolutely intolerant of Jesus. When Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's been some uh, skepticism about the reality of that prophetic, um, uh, that prophetic fulfillment because in secular history, there doesn't seem to be an account of the slaughter of babies. Um, some people argue, though, that it, Possibly could have been as few as 10 or 15 babies if it was held, if Herod identified just Bethlehem proper. It's not a very big community and maybe there wasn't a very big population. I don't know. Regardless, it was heinous. It was horrible. He had no problem killing innocents. There's another story told about this Herod that when he... Before he died, and he he knew that he was going to die, he had all of the leading citizens of the community rounded up—doctors, lawyers, professors, type. He rounded them up and locked them up, and gave strict orders that the moment that it was announced that he had died, they were to slaughter all those guys so that there would be open weeping and wailing in the community on the day of, in the moment of his death. It's the kind of crazy man he was. He had no problem killing babies. I want to conclude with just a quick few thoughts. All of that really is to lay a foundation for this part of our message, and it is this. What is it about Jesus that bugs people? Why is it that Jesus bothers people so much? What is it? I want to give you just three quick points. There's probably a hundred reasons. The first one, and I want you to turn to John's Gospel in chapter 15, and we will not belabor this. Matthew Mark Luke John in chapter 15 I want you to see in chapter 15 the first reason is simply the spiritual blindness of people spiritual blindness the reality is is that people are born spiritually blind there's other words that you can use here as well they are spiritually dead they are spiritually lost John 15 has an interesting phrase in it, and notice, beginning with verse 18, what Jesus says about himself. John 15, beginning with verse 18, if the world hates you, he said to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So Jesus was not oblivious to the fact that the world hated him. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You ever notice that? You try to live for Jesus, you get shot at. Not literally. People don't like it. They criticize you. Oh, Marso, what's wrong with you? Blah, blah blah. I can tell you lots of stories right now. If you're, if you just fit in with the sinfulness around you, everybody's happy. If you are of the world, the world would love you. You're not of the world, so the world hates you. Keep in mind, Jesus said the world hated me first, and if it hates me, it's going to hate you. All right. He goes on to say quickly. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, verse 20, the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. All right? My name, his name is offensive to the world. Other names you have to be politically correct about. Not Jesus' name. Whoever hates me, verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also, verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written, here's the point, in their law must be fulfilled. Here it is. From the Psalms, they hated me without cause. Reason number one that people are irritated by Jesus and don't like Jesus is for no reason other than they are spiritually blind and dead and it's and it's built in the hard programming of a lost person to hate the light. People who love darkness do not like the light. And so they're spiritually blind and so without any reason they hate Jesus. It's just part of their spiritual DNA as a lost person. So, don't be too puzzled by this. Just know this. People who do not know Christ as their Savior and their spiritual eyes have not been opened will have a natural bent to be down on Jesus, and that is without cause. Simply spiritual blindness. You need to also understand in Romans chapter 5, around verse 10 where the Apostle Paul is building a case for being reconciled and brought together with God, he argues there that this reconciliation, this turning around and coming back together and mending of our relationship with God as lost people, is, is necessary because when we were not one of His or born again, we are enemies of God. There is a spiritual blindness that makes us enemies of God and the second one is spiritual pride, spiritual pride. People who are religious, people who do have a sense of, of worship and, and maybe they follow some strain of a religion or a teacher, or maybe some level of following God in the Bible. There is a spiritual pride, and you can write down Matthew 19 and review later about that rich young man that came running to Jesus. He said... What do I do to have eternal life? It's a great question. Jesus, recognizing who he's talking to, puts his finger on the thing that this man really worships and it's his stuff. He's a wealthy man and Jesus said, go and sell everything you have and give your money to the poor. It wasn't that that's the requirement to jump through the gate of heaven. It's that this particular man had a problem and it was that he was self-righteous and he was very wealthy and he said that he loved the Lord as God with all his heart and he said and he believed that he loved his neighbor as himself, therefore fulfilling all the law, but he really didn't because he wasn't willing to sell his fishing pole, his deer rifle or his chainsaw and go give the money to somebody who really needed it. And if he loved his neighbor as himself, then he would have done it. And so there is there embedded in him a spiritual self-righteousness that just makes Jesus infuriating. And so he walks away sad. I really don't want to hear what this guy has to say to me. The third reason is a spiritual discomfort. Matthew chapter 7 says, in fact, let me read it quickly. Otherwise, I'll tell about it longer. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way, look at this, and the way is, what's the next word in ESV, is hard. It's hard. That leads to life, and those that find it are few. Few. There is a spiritual discomfort, number three, that makes people irritated with Jesus. Here's the deal. Not only is our mind darkened, not only is our heart sinful, there is something in us that does not like to be told that we have a problem. And Jesus looks at us, And he's the proof that we have a problem and that we are incomplete and cannot get to God. And that's what Christmas is all about. The Bible tells us that he who has the Son has life and he who does not have the Son does not have life. That's an unequivocal blanket statement. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. So the problem with Christmas is that this baby grows up and becomes very offensive. By looking at us and saying, you're not good enough. But I'm good enough to go to my Father in your place. Will you believe in me? Will you trust in me? Can I be your bread of life? Can I be your drink of living water? Can I be your bronze serpent that you look to and live? And for some reason in our spiritual pride, we just don't like that. Tell me that I'm not good enough. Let's bow in prayer. Have you looked to Jesus, my friend? Have you surrendered your heart to Christ? Do you recognize your sinfulness that Jesus came to be the Savior of the world? This is a love-driven message. It's not intended to be antagonistic. It ultimately, because of sin and the spiritual depravity of man's heart, becomes antagonistic. And Guys like Herod magnify it a thousandfold what might go on in your heart at a low level. I beg of you today to admit your sinfulness and let this Jesus, who is the spotless Lamb of God, who took your sin to the cross and fulfilled before a holy God a demand for righteousness that we could not do on our own. By faith, look to Him today, admit your sinfulness, believe that He's the Christ, By the way, he authenticated all this by rising from the dead, proving who he was. Be saved today. Surrender your life to Christ. Father, take your word and use it and challenge us this Christmas season, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.